Well, good evening, everyone. I want to welcome you back to Jesus on Prophecy. Over the last 11 sessions, we have laid a foundation for truth. And over the last couple of days, we have been building upon that truth. And we have seen some of the popular teachings of today and how they compare to what the Word of God says. And oftentimes we saw that they're not the same, haven't we? And we have been looking at these multifaceted deceptions that are going on in the world today. But tonight, we are going to do something a little different. We're going to take a break from that. Tonight, our topic is Revelation's thousand years. And so tonight, we are going to look directly at what the Word of God says about this period of time called this thousand years. What happens at the second coming of Christ and what happens during that thousand years and even a little bit of what happens after that. So let's begin with a word of prayer. Loving Father, we open up our hearts to You. Because, Lord, we know that You have brought us here. We are here by divine appointment. Because You have truth that You want to reveal to us in these last days that could change our whole lives and our whole beings. And, Lord, we want to open up to the truth because it's the truth that sets us free. And, Lord, we want to respond to the truth because You've called us to it. And so, Lord, our prayer is that the Holy Spirit would speak directly to our hearts, that the angels would be here to minister to us and help us to clearly understand the Word of God, and that you would be able to not only give us wisdom and understanding and clarity, but, Lord, you would help us to apply it to our lives and allow you to change us. And we pray and ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. In the 1920s, there was a young woman by the name of Rose who lived in New York City, and she lived a life that was consumed with the seeking of pleasure. It seemed that she existed only to attend one party after another after another, But then suddenly, at the age of 21, Rose was struck down with encephalitis lethargica. A very simple way of saying that is sickness disease. She went home one day and fell asleep and never really woke up. She sort of came out of this state that she was in, but she was immobile And she was frozen in this awkward position in her bed. The local doctor came to see her and he diagnosed her with catatonia. And he said that in just a week or so that she would be fine. But months and even years later, Rose remained fixed in this incomprehensible state. And eventually, Rose's body became so rigid 
that they admitted her, they committed her to an institution. And she laid in that bed for 48 long years. And then something remarkable happened in 1969. Dr. Oliver Sacks administered a newly developed drug to her called L-DOPA, and Rose woke up from her sleep. During the next days and weeks, she began to get stronger and stronger. She started having a brightness to her eyes, and the physicians were amazed. And they called it the Great Awakening. Of course, you can imagine and understand that, yes, Rose had this Great Awakening, and then she was awakened only to grow older and eventually die. But friends, the Bible also talks about a Great Awakening. It talks about the time when Jesus Christ is going to come back to this earth and He is going to raise His people from the dead. Those who are sleeping are going to wake up and never die again. The Scriptures tell us that this is going to happen. It is sure and we can count on it. And this is perhaps the most hopeful blessing in the entire Bible. And it gives very special meaning to our emphasis for our series, and that is that if it's in the Bible, I believe it. But if it disagrees with the Bible, it's not for me. The Bible clearly describes that there is a time coming when there will be time no more. And we are going to enter into eternity. Because if you live forever, even though the days and weeks and months roll on, time really doesn't matter, does it? Because if we don't get it done today, we'll get it done tomorrow, right? We can always live for another day. And Jesus talks about this time when we will enter into eternity And I want to show it to you. So turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 5. That's going to be page 1226. John chapter 5. And I want you to notice what Jesus says in verse 28 and 29. John chapter 5, page 1226, verse 28. Jesus says... Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming which all who are in the graves will hear His voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Now, I want to ask you a question here. How many resurrections are being spoken of here? Two, I've heard a few of you say that, and I'm glad that you've said that, because oftentimes when people look at this passage, they say there's one resurrection, and some are going to be raised to life, and some are going to be raised to death. But 
in our study, we have discovered that there are two resurrections here that's being spoken of, and what are they called? They're called the resurrection of life and the resurrection of damnation. But I want you to notice that nowhere in the passage does it tell us when these resurrections are going to happen. And so people read them and they naturally assume that there's one resurrection. What we study the Bible and we're going to learn, if we haven't already, tonight we're going to learn that these are actually two separate and distinct resurrections. But the problem that people have is they read that verse and they think it's just talking about one resurrection. And we've already talked about this first resurrection. And it happens at the second coming of Jesus Christ. Men and women who have given their hearts to Jesus Christ, who have placed Him on the throne of their heart, have been filled with the Holy Spirit, they are empowered to keep the commandments of God, and the record books in heaven are opened and being examined in the judgment, and their life actions reveal that they have been truly transformed by the power of God, and those that are sleeping in the grave are going to wake up. There's going to be this great awakening And they are going to wake up from the grave and they are never going to face death again. And when they do wake up, they are going to see Jesus Christ coming in the clouds of heaven. And so they are going to see Jesus coming in all of His glory. I want you to notice what it says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, we've looked at this verse already, but let's look at it again. The Bible says, For the Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. This is the first resurrection. This is the resurrection of the righteous. Now, today, you and I are living in what the Bible refers to as the last days. And so I know I have the hope, and I hope that you do too, we have the hope that we are that last generation that's going to be alive at the coming of Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I kind of like that idea. I don't want to taste death. I have been very close to death several times in my life, and I'd rather just skip that appointment. And I would rather go straight to immortality like Paul wanted to do in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8. And so we are living in that time, and we have that hope. But we also know that God is not willing that any should perish. And so it may very well be that even though we are living as though Christ is coming in our time, it may be that we have to taste death. But here's the awesome point about the whole thing. When you close your eyes in the sleep of death, 
the next conscious thought that you have is you seeing Jesus Christ coming in the clouds of heaven and you are going to go home and be with the Lord. And to you, even though you may have been sleeping in the grave for thousands of years, it's going to seem to you instantaneously. The last thing you remember is laying down and going to sleep and now you're waking up at the coming of Jesus. Here's a little amazing fact for you. You may know this already. You may not. But you can go by just about any cemetery in the world. And almost in every single case, not all of them, there are a few exceptions, but almost in every case, the tombstones are facing to the east. You ever notice that? They do that on purpose because the Bible says that Christ is coming from the east and so when you wake up from the grave, you're looking. There He is. I see Him. And so we have that hope of that first resurrection. And so what we see here is that as a Christian, as someone who has surrendered their heart to God, someone who has the actions of their life revealing that they have been changed, you have nothing to fear in death. It is just like you going home tonight and laying down in your bed and going to sleep and you can have confidence that Christ is going to raise you up again. And the Bible also says that our lives are hid in Christ. We can count on that. But 1 Thessalonians 4.16 continues on. The next verse says, Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Here we see that Paul is telling us we have this glorious resurrection that is going to occur. The dead in Christ are going to rise from the dead. They're not going to have the body of the grave, but they are going to be given in a new glorious body. And then we who are alive and remain at the same time are going to be transformed. This corruption is going to put on incorruption. And we are going to go together to meet the Lord in the air. It is going to be an amazing day. And that verse ends with this. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. No more death, no more sickness, no more crying. God is going to take all of that away. But here's the thing. When Jesus Christ comes back to this world, there is going to be only two classes of people. Those who are going to be saved and those who are going to be lost. Those who are going to be raised up in the first resurrection to eternal life and those who are going to be raised up in the second resurrection, the resurrection of damnation. And so you see from this that there are no second chances. There is not going to be another opportunity to get our hearts right with God. That's why the Bible says today is the day of salvation, for we don't know what tomorrow will bring. 
And now is the time for us to give our hearts to Him, ask Him to come into our lives and be our Lord and Savior. And that's why the Bible says in Revelation 20, verse 6, Blessed and holy is He who has part in the first resurrection. They are blessed. They are saved. They are righteous. They're covered by the blood of the Lamb. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. What is it going to really, truly be like when Christ comes? Have you ever thought about that? I want you to just try to imagine in the privacy of your heart what that's going to be like. For me, I imagine having a peace and a serenity in the middle of chaos because there is going to be destruction that comes upon this world but I can just imagine uh, looking and seeing a little girl maybe three four five years old coming out of the grave and I can imagine the angels going to her because she is saved The Bible talks about a thing called the age of accountability. And she's not there yet, and so she's going to be saved. But I also imagine mom and dad who have given their hearts to Jesus, who have kept the commandments of God. They have reflected in their lifestyle that God is ruling and reigning in their hearts and in their minds. And they are going to be raised from the dead. And I can imagine the angels bringing that little girl to mom and dad. And can you imagine the thousands, the millions of family reunions that are going to happen that day? While you're thinking about that in your heart, I want you to watch a video here, and listen to the words of Buddy Hotelling as he sings Family Reunion. I don't know about you, but I love that song. As you try to imagine in your mind and in your heart what it's going to be like, and I don't think that even in our best day, our best thinking can do it justice. It is going to be a glorious day. It is going to be a joy-filled day. It is going to be a true family reunion. But the Bible talks about two groups of people. Those who are going to be filled with joy on that day. Those who are going to be resurrected. Those who are going to be restored with their family relations. And the the living, the righteous are going to be transformed in the twinkling of an eye. And the dead are going to be raised up and we're going to meet the Lord in the air. But then the Bible talks about that other group. It describes the event that does not fill them with joy. 
It describes this second group who are not prepared for the coming of Jesus, who are not looking forward to Him being their King. They're not happily waiting the resurrection of their family. And when they see Christ coming in the clouds of heaven, they're going to have a quite different reaction. Revelation chapter 6, verse 15 through 17 tells us what they're going to say and do. And it says, And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man, hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of His wrath has come, and who is able to stand? I really find that verse to be very interesting because it's talking about a large number of people that are going to be saying this, especially that last part when they say who is going to be able to stand because they haven't thought it through. They haven't realized that the only way that you can stand before a righteous, holy God is if you yourself are righteous and holy. And you can't get yourself there. You need to be covered by the righteousness of Christ and they don't have it and so they ask who is able to stand. There's one class of people that are resurrected from the dead. They're transformed and they look up and they see Christ in the clouds and they say this is our God. We have waited for Him and He is able to save us. And they are filled with great joy. But then there's the second class. There are those that look up and their hearts are filled with fear and they're filled with guilt and they run away. And it should remind us of exactly what happened to Adam and Eve when they first sinned in the Garden of Eden. And God came to see them and they ran and they hid themselves from Him. The guilt is too much. And they cry out to the rocks, fall on us and hide us. Oh, friends, what a shame. What a tragedy, because this doesn't have to happen. God has made provision that every single person could be saved. The Christ who wants to save them comes and they turn their backs on Him and they run because they have refused His offer of eternal life. The Christ who comes and wants to heal them of all of their diseases and give them eternal life can't do so because they have refused His payment for their sin and now they have to pay that penalty themselves. And so they run from Him. They hide from Him. They turn their backs on Him. They have never crowned Him the King of their lives. And now they are unable to crown Him as the King of the universe. That really brings up the question, what does it mean to accept Jesus as King? It means that we invite Him into our heart. The Bible says we must repent of our sins, turn from it, and invite Him in. And ask Him to sit on the throne of our heart. 
You know, it's interesting that everybody in the world wants a Savior. Even atheists. They want someone to save them from taxes. They want someone to save them from this thing or that thing. But it's a whole different thing to want a master. Someone who rules on the throne of your heart. Someone who is in the driver's seat. Someone who is dictating your life. And so we've got to come to Christ and we've got to ask Him to forgive us of our sins. Come into our lives. Forgive us and we give Him control. We make Him the one who's in charge and we ask Him to help us to be willing to be willing so that He can do in us the things that we cannot do in ourselves. And friends, tonight Jesus is inviting us to do that very thing. To make Him Lord, Savior, Master, and King of our hearts. You see, friends, there's no reason for any of us not to be prepared for that second coming. He comes to redeem us. He's coming to take us from this earth back to His home in heaven And that's why He says that we should not be troubled. The second coming of Christ is the greatest hope that we have as believers. It takes all the doubt and all the fear for tomorrow away. I want you to notice what Jesus said in John 14, verse 1. He said, "...let not your heart be troubled." You believe in God, believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you so. But I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you unto Myself, that where I am, there you may be also. I want you to notice, first of all, in there, the love and the mercy And the kindness of Jesus. He says, let not your heart be troubled. You give your heart to Me and I'll take care of all of the rest. You don't have to worry about it. You just leave it all to Me. But then notice what He doesn't say. He doesn't say, And maybe I will come. But He says, I will come again. He came to this earth the first time and He said, I'm coming again a second time. But this time He's not coming as a child born of a virgin. He's not coming as a babe in Bethlehem's manger. He's not coming to die on the cross. This time He's coming to sit on the throne. Christ is coming again in the clouds of heaven. He's coming as a conquering general. All the world's wrongs and all the world's evil are going to be dealt with. So let's look at the events of Christ's coming. The first thing that we see is that His believers are going to be resurrected. They're going to awaken in that great awakening 
and they are going to come out of the grave and they're not going to look like they've been in the grave. They're going to have brand new glorious bodies that are incorruptible. And then those who are alive and remain are going to be transformed at that same time and they're going to be caught up in the air to meet Him and they are going to put on immortality. And death will be swallowed up in victory. Amen? Amen. We also see that the living wicked at the time of His coming are going to be consumed. They are going to be destroyed by the brightness of His coming. And then we also see that the wicked dead are going to remain in the grave. They are not resurrected in this first resurrection. There's another resurrection that awaits them. And notice what Revelation chapter 20, verse 5 says about that. It says, but the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. And when it's talking about the rest of the dead, it's talking about all of those that were destroyed by the brightness of His coming and all of those wicked that remained in the grave. Now, after a thousand years in heaven, now He's going to come and He's going to resurrect them And they are not a part of that first resurrection. We also believe and see from the Word of God that the believers are going to ascend up into heaven and be with Christ for that thousand years. But that brings up the question, what happens after Christ comes? What happens after the second coming? What happens during the second coming. What is going to be the condition of the earth? What is going to happen to Satan? Is anyone on the earth alive during that thousand years? When is God going to make the earth new? What did Jesus mean when He said that He was going to create a new heaven and a new earth? What did Jesus mean when He said the meek shall inherit the earth? When do those things happen? Those are all great questions. And the Bible answers those questions. The book of Revelation provides some of the answers to those questions. You go to Revelation chapter 19... And it's very interesting that it describes Jesus coming back to this earth as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's coming back as a conquering hero. He's coming back in victory. And He is going to vanquish all of the forces of evil. But then you get to Revelation chapter 20 and it begins to show you the things that are going to happen at His second coming and the things that happen after that. So let's turn in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 20. It's going to be page 1423. Revelation, the last book of the Bible, chapter 20. And I want you to notice what the Bible says in verse 1 and 2. Revelation 20, verse 1 says, Then I, this is John, saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, 
and a great chain in his hand, he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. I want you to notice that the first thing that we see there is a time sequence. It tells us that Satan is going to be bound for how long? For a thousand years. This is where Bible students get the term the millennium. Now, what is the millennium? Well, first of all, I would point out to you that you are not going to find the word millennium in the Bible. But it is two Latin words, millennium, and they mean 1,000 years. And so when someone's talking about the millennium, that's what they're talking about. They're talking about this 1,000 years. And then I want you to notice that this passage also told us that he was going to be thrown into a bottomless pit, right? And so what is this bottomless pit? Is it some uh, subterranean cavern in the earth or, or is it something else? I would point out to you, first of all, that the New Testament, which includes the book of Revelation that we're talking about here, was written in Greek. And if you go back to the original Greek text and you look at the word that is used that is translated into English, bottomless pit, it is the word abusos. And that's where we get our English word abyss. And so you will see there are several Bible translations that actually use that word. Instead of saying he was thrown into the bottomless pit, they say he was thrown into the abyss. And you can find that in the Amplified Version. You can find that in the New American Standard. You can find it in the New International Version. And there are probably others that use that word abyss rather than bottomless pit. But it's interesting, when you look up the word abyss, there are actually several definitions that it gives. One of them is simply the bottomless pit. So that doesn't really help us much. But there is another definition that simply says a place of darkness. And so that's one definition of the abyss. It's also very interesting that if you go to the Greek to English dictionary and you look up that word abusos, it describes the abusos, which is the bottomless pit, as the abode of the dead and demons. That's the abusos. It also gives alternate definitions of a place of desolation, emptiness, and it is associated with chaos. And so when we look at this word bottomless pit, it's talking about the place where the dead and the demons are. 
It's talking about this place of darkness, this place of desolation. Now I want to take you to Genesis chapter 1. So go with me back to the first book of the Bible, the first chapter. So that's going to be the first page. And I want you to notice in describing creation or what the world was like before creation... I want you to notice what it says in verse 2. Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. The Bible says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And I'm going to stop there. Because I want to point you to three words there in that verse. Formless, void, and the deep. And it's very interesting that the book of Genesis was written in Hebrew. And so if you go to the original Hebrew text and you look up the word that is used there and translated into the word in English, deep, it is the word tahom. And that word tahom, describing the deep, means a place of darkness a place of secrecy and the depths of the earth. And then you look up those words, formless and void, and that word void is the Hebrew word baho. And the definition of the word baho is described as the desolate earth, a waste place, a place of total chaos. And so it's very interesting that when you go to Revelation 20 and you look at this description of the earth after the second coming of Christ, it is a place of desolation. It is a place of darkness. It is a place where the dead and the demons are. And then you go back and you look at what the earth was before creation and it's telling you the same thing. It was a place of desolation. It was a place of waste. It was a total place of chaos. And so we're seeing that at the second coming of Christ, this planet is going to be totally destroyed. There are verses that talk about He comes in fervent heat and destroys the wicked. There's verses that talk about the very elements melting and the earth being burned up. This place is going to be totally destroyed at His coming, and it's going to look just like it did before He created. And so, the abyss and the word bohu are describing the earth before creation and after the second coming of Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ comes the second time, the Bible says every mountain is going to be moved out of its place, it's going to be brought down. Every island is going to be moved out of its place. The wicked living are going to be destroyed by the brightness of His coming. They are going to be consumed by the glory of Christ. They are going to be destroyed. And the world, the planet, is also going to be destroyed. This earth is going to be desolate. 
it is going to be an abyss. It is going to look like the world did before He created. And so the bottomless pit is the abyss. A desolate, destroyed planet Earth. But let me ask you another question. What are these chains that are going to bind Satan? Does God come down and put handcuffs on him and chain him to a tree? Is that what this is saying? Are these literal chains that are going to bind him? Or is this talking about something else? The Bible tells us in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into what? Chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. And so during the thousand years, Satan and his angels are going to be chained to this earth. And according to the Scripture, these are chains of darkness. So during that thousand years, Satan is wandering around this desolate earth with no one to tempt. He is chained by circumstances. These are not physical chains, but this is a chain of circumstance. And what are the circumstances? There's no one to tempt. There's no one to deceive. There's no one to lead away from God because all of God's people are in heaven and all of the wicked are destroyed and laying on the ground as refuse or are in the grave. And so there's no one to tempt. And so here he is on this planet which is totally destroyed, totally desolate, And there's no one for him to tempt. Now, someone might say, well, why doesn't God come back during that thousand years and make the earth new? Well, let me try to give you a few reasons. Number one, I would say that God is giving Satan and his angels a little time out. He's giving them some time to reflect on their choices. He's giving them some time to see the results of their rebellion. And so everything that God does, He does for the security of the universe and for eternity. Because He is going to do away with sin forever. God is handling the sin problem and it's not a quick fix. I mean, think about it for a minute. It has already been 6,000 years that this controversy has been going on between Christ and Satan. It's not something that can be fixed overnight. And so another thousand years isn't going to mean much after we've already been going through this for 6,000 years. God desires to make sure that sin never raises its ugly head again. And in order to do this, 
He's going to have to do a couple of things. You see, the entire universe, all of the angels, all of humankind, everyone that has ever lived is going to have to come to a place where they realize and recognize that God is love. That God is worthy to be trusted. And that's why Jesus came to this earth to show us the love of God and this incredible love that died for us and that we can trust Him. You see, friends, there is no sin that is so dark that God can't blot it out. There is no length that He won't go to to save you. There's no pit so deep that He can't reach down into it and pull you out of it. And this great controversy between Christ and Satan, this great controversy between good and evil, is going to be settled once and for all when the whole universe understands, realizes that sin is bad. Satan wanders around this dark, broken earth hearing and seeing the echoing of the Word of God. The wages of sin is death. And as the entire universe is examining what's going on on this planet, we will be able to see This is what happens when there is a planet without God. But is there anyone alive on earth during this millennium? We've already talked about this. God's people are all taken to heaven. The living wicked are destroyed. The dead wicked remain in the ground. And so the only beings on this planet are Satan and the angels that rebelled with him. But I want you to notice something very important. Notice how Jeremiah describes this planet. Jeremiah chapter 4, starting in verse 23 says, I beheld the earth, and indeed it was without form and void, and the heavens they had no light. That sounds exactly like what we read in Genesis chapter 1 verse 2, doesn't it? That sounds exactly like what the earth was like before creation. But Jeremiah keeps going. I beheld the mountains and indeed they trembled and all of the hills moved back and forth. I beheld and indeed there was no man and all the birds of the heavens had fled. Hold on a minute. He's not talking about creation because he says the birds fled. The birds weren't there until creation. So this is not the pre-created earth that he's talking about. He keeps going. He says, I beheld and indeed the fruitful land was a wilderness. It was not a fruitful land before creation. It was formless and void. But here he's saying that now the fruitful land was a wilderness. There is no man. The birds have fled away. 
And if we still doubt what he's talking about, he says, and all its cities were broken down at the presence of the Lord by his fierce anger. Clearly, this is talking about what the earth is going to look like after he comes. It's going to be desolate. The wilderness is no more. And then he goes on and says, For thus says the Lord, the whole land shall be desolate, yet I will not make a full end. What's he saying here? He's saying it's desolated, it's destroyed, but I'm not done with it yet. I'm going to come back and I'm going to create a new heaven and a new earth. Notice what it says in Jeremiah 25.33. And at that day, that's the second coming of Christ, the slain of the Lord shall be from one end of the earth even to the other end of the earth. They shall not be lamented or gathered or buried. They shall become refuse on the ground. Why is this? Because when Jesus Christ comes to this earth, He's taking His people home. All of the wicked are going to be destroyed that are living and they're going to be left as refuse on the ground. Because the only beings on the planet are Satan and His angels and He doesn't care. He's not going to take the time to bury them. He could care less. He has no compassion And so they lay on the ground and the birds come and eat the bodies. You see, friends, love brings life, but selfishness brings death. The Bible says in Revelation chapter 20, verse 6, Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Why? Because over such the second death has no power. Those who are a part of that first resurrection will never face death. They will live forever with Him. But that verse goes on to say, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and they shall reign with Him for a thousand years. They're going to be priests of God. We're going to reign with Him. And what is it that we're doing for that thousand years? Just a couple of verses earlier, it told us. John says, And I saw thrones, and they, that's the saints, that's the people of God, they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Friends, don't sell your soul cheap. There are only two ways. One way leads to life, and the other way leads to death. And God says the books are going to be opened. Now you might say, you mean to tell me that even after the lost are lost, that the books are open? Yes, because the drama between good and evil, between Christ and Satan, still isn't over. During that thousand years, God is going to answer every question. You see, that pre-advent judgment, the angels were looking over the books. 
But now we go back to heaven and we get to examine the books. Because I can guarantee you that you and I are going to have some questions for God. We can imagine that there's going to be a guy by the name of Stephen who gets up in there to heaven and he looks over and he sees Saul of Tarsus. And the last thing he remembers is he was being stoned to death and he saw Paul holding the coats, giving approval to his death. And he sees Saul there and he says, what's he doing here? And he's going to have an opportunity to examine the books. And he's going to see that while he was being stoned to death, that Saul of Tarsus began to be convicted that what he was doing was wrong. And shortly after that, on the road to Damascus, he was introduced to Jesus Christ. He gave his heart to Him. And he became the great Apostle Paul to the Gentiles. And because of that, millions and billions of people are in heaven and do you think that Stephen's going to be okay with that? I think so, but he's going to have a question until he examines the books. And then there might be some of you looking around and you might say, where's Pastor Rod? I thought for sure he'd be here. He was a righteous dude, right? He helped me to see the truth. But then you get an opportunity to examine the books. And you see, whoa, this guy was just a whitewashed tomb. He looked good on the outside, but inside they were just dead men's bones. He was just looking like a Christian, but he wasn't living that life. There wasn't a record in that judgment that showed that his life had been transformed. And so we're going to have some questions Why isn't so-and-so here? Or why are they here? And we are going to be able to examine those books. And we are going to be able to see that God was right. God was perfect in every judgment that He made. And if somebody's not there, it's not because He didn't do everything that He could do to get them there. They're not there because of their own choices. And so there's a judgment that's going on and every question about His justice, His love, His mercy, it is all going to be answered. And the amazing thing about this is that God is even going to allow us to participate in the final decision of judgment of those who are still on the earth. Notice what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 2, and 3. He says, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? That's what we're doing in heaven for that thousand years, judging the good angels and the bad, judging the good and the wicked for all of mankind. And when heaven's books are opened, We are all going to be brought to a place where we fully understand all of the things that happen to us. We are going to understand the hard times. We are going to understand the good times. And we are going to see how everything fit perfectly into the plan of God. So let's review what happens during this millennium or this thousand years 
and see if it's clear. We're going to see that the righteous go to heaven. The wicked dead remain in the grave. And those who are destroyed by His coming remain dead for that thousand years. Satan and his angels are going to be bound to the earth, not by physical change, but by circumstances. And the earth is going to remain desolate for that thousand years. But then what happens after the millennium? The wicked dead are going to be resurrected. Let me show you that in Revelation 20 verse 5. But the rest of the dead, that's all of those that were destroyed by the brightness of His coming, all of those who wicked remained in the grave, they did not live again until the thousand years were finished. At the end of that thousand years, Christ is coming back to this earth. You see, there's two resurrections. There's the resurrection of life. There's the resurrection of His believers before the thousand years at the second coming of Christ, but then after the thousand years, there's going to be the resurrection of damnation and the wicked are also going to stand in judgment. And John describes this group of lost human beings in this remarkable phrase in Revelation 20, verse 8. Their number is as the sand of the sea. Isn't that sad? Their number is going to be incredibly large. And as the drama of the ages unfolds, the battle between good and evil is going to come to a glorious climax. The wicked are going to be raised up in that second resurrection. And Satan and the wicked of all ages are going to come together in one gigantic army and attack God's holy city which comes down out of heaven to the earth at the end of the thousand years. And look at this description, Revelation 20, verse 7 and 8. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison. I ask you, how or why is that possible? Well, we know that he was chained by his circumstances, right? There was no one to tempt. There was no one to deceive. But now he's released from his chains because the wicked dead have been resurrected. And now he's got his old job back. He goes right back to doing. That thousand years of time out did absolutely nothing for him. And he immediately goes right back to his same old tricks, deceiving the world. It says, and he will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. Revelation 21 verse 12 talks about that holy city coming down out of heaven. It says, then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. After that thousand years in heaven of examining the books, the new Jerusalem, the city of God, and all that are in it are coming back to this earth, and God is going to make the earth the headquarters of the universe. He is moving His home to this planet. And the climax of the ages says that the holy city descends out of heaven 
to the earth. And then Satan and the resurrected wicked, they are going to rush upon the city. They want to overthrow God and His government and they want to take control of the universe. And here's the thing, friends. Every single person who has ever lived is going to be in one of two places. You're either going to be inside the city with Christ or you're going to be outside with Satan and his host of hell. I want you to think about that for a minute. All of the wicked coming against the city of God. In my heart and in my mind, that's the saddest thing I've ever heard. Because what God freely offered them, they're now going to try and take by force. But before the wicked, before the unsaved, and all of the host of His angels, before they are destroyed, God allows them to see in panoramic view their lives. Every single choice that they've ever made is going to come up before them. Every opportunity that they had to surrender their hearts to Him and they rejected is going to come before them. And they are going to stand in judgment. I want to show you that. So turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. And I want you to notice what it says in verse 11 and 12. Revelation 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and Him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heavens fled away, and there was found no place for them. Who's the them? All of the wicked. There's no place found for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were open, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. Here we see that all of the wicked are going to stand before God, and they're going to see all of their life and all of their choices, and they're going to see that God is righteous and God is holy. And Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And when that judgment is done, they are all going to get down on their knees. And everyone has two. They're going to be in both knees. That's a position of submission. And they are going to say... God is righteous. Christ is holy. And they're going to surrender their hearts to Him. But it's only for a moment. Only for a brief moment in time when the whole world has now surrendered their heart to Him and they have bowed in submission and now the devil is going to start a frenzy and get them all to realize we can take the city of God. And Revelation reveals that they come around the city. Now I want you to think about this for a minute. 
The Bible says that the New Jerusalem is 1,500 furlongs a, a measurement around the city. If you translate that into our type of measurement that we have today, that means that each side of the city, it's square, each side of the city is 375 miles long. That means that the city of God is roughly about the size of the state of Colorado. And there are enough people with Satan and his angels to completely surround the city. That is really sad. Because God says that hell was not meant for man, but for Satan and his angels. And so here we have them all coming against God. But I want you to notice what John says. Look with me in Revelation 21. And he's talking about you and me. He says, Revelation 21, verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and He will dwell with them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. God is going to dwell among us. That has been His desire from the beginning. That has been His goal all along. That He wants us to be where He is. He wants us to have fellowship with Him. And He is going to be there with us. And so the glorious city descends out of heaven. And it comes down to this earth. And Satan marshals his legions of evil angels and all of the lost. And now they attack the city believing that they can take control of the universe. And Revelation chapter 20, verse 9 tells us, "...they went up on the breadth of the earth, and they surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them." You see, friends, the entire universe is going to be clean. Satan and his angels are going to be destroyed. And out of the ashes of this old world, God is going to create a new heaven and a new earth. The entire universe in symphony, in praise, is going to declare, just and righteous are Your ways, O God. And this amazing scene is portrayed in the last two chapters of Revelation, chapter 21 and 22. But look with me in verse 21. It says in verse 1, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth have passed away. Also there was no more sea. You see, friends, the fire that came down out of God and destroyed them has done its work. And now God is going to create a perfect new earth. So let's look at the events at the end of the millennium. Christ, the saints, and the holy city are going to come down out of heaven. The wicked dead are going to be raised Satan is going to be loosed of his chains. He's going to go out and deceive them all again. They're going to all come up, but they're going to stand in the last and final phase of the judgment. 
And the wicked are going to see the results of their choices. They're going to see what they missed out on. And then they're going to submit to God for a moment. But then Satan rallies them all together again. And they come against the city of God. And Satan and the host of all of the lost are destroyed. And the earth is cleansed and renewed. Friends, would you like to be a part of that new earth? Would you like to live in a world where there's no sickness or suffering or death? Would you like to live in a land where there's no worry or want anymore? Would you want to be in a land where fear and anxiety are gone? There's no more stress of the things of life. The land where there's no prisons, no hospitals, no soup kitchens, no war, no disease, no poverty, no mental institutions. A land where love and peace and righteousness dwell and reign forever and ever. Notice in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13, Peter says, Nevertheless, we according to His promise look for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Friends, is there anything in this life that can hold you back from surrendering it all to Christ? Because you see, one day Christ is going to reign upon a throne in the universe. But tonight, He wants to reign on the throne of your heart. And He's asking us to give it all to Him. To lay it all on the altar. To get ready for His coming. You want to be ready? Is that the desire of your heart? Then let's pray. Father in Heaven, Lord, thank You for this vivid picture of the millennium and what happens at Your second coming and after that and even after the millennium. And Lord, we realize that You love us so much You want us to be with You. And Lord, we want to be there too. And Lord, we're praying and asking that You will empower us to live for You. Fill us with Your Holy Spirit. Write Your law in our mind and in our hearts. Help us to be how the Bible describes that last generation of people who love You so much that they keep all of Your commandments. And Lord, we're praying that You will prepare us for the things that are coming upon the world. We pray that we would be counted worthy to escape the punishment of the world. We pray that we would be able to stand at the brightness of Your coming. We pray that our flight will not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. And Lord, we pray that You will help us to live out our faith so that our life record reveals that You are on the throne of our hearts. And we pray and ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.